even when I get in situations that are challenging or I go through hurdles myself, I have to remind myself of, oh, you've been through much worse. Like this is just, you know, a little bump in the road. And and it's good to look back in, in the past and remind yourself of what you've been through so that you know, okay, I can get through this too. everybody, Emily Abadi here. You are listening to episode 204 of Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I connect with everyone from your favorite athletes to top experts and industry CEOs about their highest highs, toughest moments, and everything in between. We all go through hurdles in life, and my goal through these discussions is to empower you to better navigate yours and move with intention so that you can stride toward your own big potential. And of course, have some fun along the way. I am elated. That feels like the biggest understatement to bring you this week's conversation with Paralympian Scout Bassett. Scout's story, this is the biggest understatement, is one of grit and resilience. Now, when it comes to facing hurdles, Scout is no stranger. She was born in China and abandoned after losing her leg in a fire when she was just about 18 months old. She then moved into an orphanage and we talk extensively about what that experience was like for her today and was then adopted at age seven moved to the United States and adjusted to not only learning the ways of a new culture, but also a new language. Now, despite her disability, Bassett was always, always, always passionate about sport and movement. And eventually she learned to run using her prosthetic leg. In today's episode, we talk about what it was like to get an actual prosthetic that was made for activity. And then her drive, which carried her through to run professionally, starting with her time at UCLA. We talk about the grit and tenacity that it took for her herself to make it to the Paralympic Games and what the competition was like, what that felt like, and the hurdle of sitting out on competition for the 2020 Games and instead commentating on the action for NBC. So grateful for Scout being so willing to get vulnerable and open about her experience. Her story truly, when I say it is unbelievable, her strength is just, it's unrivaled and it's so, so beautiful. Now, I do feel like I have some new hurdlers in the mix lately, especially after the slew of live shows last week in Boston. So I want to say welcome. And yep, I just called you a hurdler. That's what I call the audience. I'd love for you to connect with one another in the Facebook group. It's called the Super Secret Hurdlers Facebook group. It's not secret at all. The link to join it is in the show notes. And stay up to date with what's going on with me, what's going on with the show, and get more of the inspiration and motivation you love directly in your inbox every single Friday with the weekly hurdle newsletter. The link to subscribe is in the show notes and bonus. The best part is it's free. Of course, always stay up to date with the show, the guests and me over on social media. You can find hurdle over at hurdle podcast. I am over at Emily Abadi. And while you're at it, while I'm in the midst of all this housekeeping, Leave a review, will you? It would mean the world to me. Just take a few seconds, head on in over to the Apple Podcasts store or wherever you are listening to this podcast. Rate and review the show. Send an episode to a friend. 
and let me know what keeps you coming back time and time again to hurdle every week. And with that, let's get to hurdling. Today, I am sitting down with Scout Bassett. How are you doing today, Scout? I'm great, Emily. Thanks so much for having me. Super excited to join your podcast. I am so excited to have you join my podcast. I, I'll i be honest with you, the hurdlers, that's what I refer to the listeners of the show, they have been asking for me to chat with you for some <laughs> time now. Oh my gosh. Well, uh, no pressure here, but it's quite an honor for me to be here with you. The thing that I want to kick start off with you is something that I've seen you speak about on your great platforms in the past. And that is about the fact that 15% of the global population, that's more than a billion people worldwide are living with some sort of a disability, whether that is visible or invisible. You, a Paralympian, do you feel as though at this point in your athletic career that your disability has almost gotten to define you? Wow, that's a great question. Yes and no. I think what is difficult sometimes is people know you for that, right? It's like always, oh yeah, the the girl with the prosthetic or the the amputee or the girl with the one leg. And and that is oftentimes sort of the thing that people you know, know you for. And on the other hand, I'm not upset about it because it is something that is unique. It's obviously uh, not super common or, you know, every day. And so I do respect that fact that, you know, I'm very proud of uh, everything that I stand for and all the things that really make me me. I don't want to fight those things. You know, I think so many people get in these positions and they don't want to be a part of a community that they belong in, right? They're resistant to that. And I don't feel that way. And so, but yes, it is um, sometimes, you know, frustrating when all people know you or, or, or they, the first thing they think of when they think of you is not anything about who you are as a person, but Oh yeah, she's got one leg, you know. So yeah, that's the part where I, you know, obviously, and, and I think that's globally. Like I, in talking with people with disabilities everywhere, they always say that I wish my disability was just a side note and not necessarily the lead to who I am. And so I can very much understand that too. When you think about who you are at your core, when you describe yourself, (laughs) who is Scout Bassett? It's constantly evolving, I think, in some ways and changing just because, you know, I'm changing and I'm growing and evolving. But at the core of who I am is somebody who's extremely passionate about what I do. I'm passionate about my craft. Uh, Everything that I do has a sense of purpose or meaning for me. I don't have a lot of free time. So given that the projects, the things that I invest my time in are things that mean something to me and say something about who I am or, or what I represent or what I'm passionate about. 
And so that I would say is, is, is who I am is just someone who's really passionate about things, passionate about making change, passionate about creating pathways for others, uh, and passionate about really being the very best that I can be. And not just for myself, but for others. And I think the other thing I would say about me is I'm somebody who is just extremely resilient, very strong. I've been through a lot of really hard things in my life. And even when I get in situations that are challenging or I go through hurdles myself, I have to remind myself of, oh, you've been through much worse. Like this is just, you know, a little bump in the road. And, and it's good to look back in, in the past and remind yourself of what you've been through so that you know, okay, I can get through this too. So I, I think that I would say that's a quality I'm really proud about of myself. Resiliency. That's absolutely beautiful. And I really appreciated what you started off by saying that note that I accept that this is who I am. Mm -hmm. And I can totally sympathize and hear where you're coming from with that because there are some things, you know, whether it be a circumstance or just, you know, the way that life goes, there are things that are going to be out of our control. Mm -hmm. So I hear you now, but I would have to assume that, you know, maybe you didn't always feel that way about your circumstance. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, I think so much of life is about things that you cannot change about ourselves, right? It's things you're born into. It's things that you are born with, qualities, characteristics, whether it's your your ethnicity, whether it's the, the shape or size of your body, or whether it's circumstances that you had absolutely no control over. And while I've never spent a lot of time wallowing in those things, certainly there have been moments where I'm the human part of me says, oh, I wish it didn't have to be like this, or I wish I was this and not this, you know, I'll give you an example. I am a runner, a sprinter, and I am only four nine and uh, probably weigh the size of like a newborn calf, I'm guessing. And <laughs> in a sport where size to some element does matter when you are competing and you tow the start line and women next to you are much taller and have a lot more size than you and don't have to work quite as hard or as quickly as you. That's Those are times where, you know, I say, oh, gosh, I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I had a little bit more size on me. And obviously, that's not something I can change, right? I can't change my genetic makeup in that sense. But in terms of life circumstances, being in the orphanage, losing my leg, coming here to America, being adopted, all the struggles that I've been through on that journey are things that I obviously can't change. And the circumstances of my experience in the orphanage and having to make peace with that and to have a sense of acceptance of like, this is the experiences you've lived through, this is your story, this is your past, but it doesn't have to be something that you're a prisoner of and or a place that you have to be parked at forever. You can move forward from those things. You can heal. You can become whole. And if you allow it, those things can be the very things that 
give you strength and power and really help you to be all that you can be and also to help somebody else. So I have definitely had to have that mind shift of, okay, for so long, it was about survival. It was about working through these things. It was about coping. It was about that healing journey. It was about navigating the dark seasons that you go through when you go experience something so traumatic, things that break you down as a person. And that's what I felt like I was doing for a long chunk of my life is just, okay, I've just got to survive. I've got to get through this. And now I can have a sense of, okay, not only have I gotten through it, but I'm going to embrace it, accept it, and use this as something that really powers me and strengthens me. Right. Not just how can you survive, but how can you thrive with the circumstances in the hand that you've been dealt? You uh, you mentioned being born in China and uh, being abandoned after losing your leg in a fire when you were just 18 months old. Mm-hmm. You also talked about the orphanage. Talk to us a little bit about that upbringing in China. It's uh, an experience that... I would never wish on another human being the kind of experience that leaves you absolutely broken and devastated to your core and um, just unthinkable things of, of abuse, of neglect, of hopelessness, of desperation, things you do out of complete desperation, really a sense of survival, right? Of every day, like I've just got to make it another day. And I tell people, I'm obviously a big dreamer now, and I have big dreams, but I was not that growing up. Because there was no such thing as that. (laughs) You never dreamt of, of a life beyond the next day of just can I survive today to make it to tomorrow. And so when I say that, I um really paint a picture of such isolation, such darkness. And I I even look back and and wonder how I even survived that because uh, it's just things that you wouldn't, you, you don't think a person could really make it through. The amount of pain that you live with, both physical, emotional, mental, and to be such a young person and to have to figure that out when you're that young, you you don't have the coping skills, the maturity to be able to handle a lot of that kind of, you know, pain and trauma and, and heartache. And but somehow you do right every day you survive, you get by. And um, but I think that I can look back now and say that I wouldn't change a single thing. I, I don't regret anything that's happened as traumatic and horrific as that experience was. I know that I wouldn't be the person that I am today. I know that I wouldn't have the strength, the courage, the resilience, the will to keep going, to push forward, had I not been sort of forced into a situation to develop that at such a young age. And so I can really appreciate that experience for that reason. To say that it was hard is is an understatement. It's, uh, it's beyond that. It's, I don't know if there's a word to really describe what you live through day in and day out, uh, because 
most people wouldn't even have a context for that here. It devastating on so many levels. Can you remember some of the conditions of what it was like for you in that orphanage? Yeah. Uh, mind you, I was almost eight years old when I left. So right. people are always so shocked by that. And when you're almost that age, you have the ability to form memories and emotions and feelings. We never left the premises of that place. So in the seven years that I lived there, never left the grounds of that orphanage. And I remember from our, our playroom or our, not our playroom, but our living room where all the beds are, we could see a, a playground outside sort of this dirty window. And you there were swings, there was a slide, there were some bars. And it kind of looked like there's something that goes off in your head. Okay, that looks like something that we should be on. I should be on. But instead of allowing us to go outside and play on the playground, they hung laundry to dry over the playground. So like sheets and blankets and whatnot. And um, it's just like, that's something that's so poignant in, in my mind and vivid, because I remember that being something that that was really characteristic of a lot of our experiences. You'd see something that, or feel something that was meant for you. And then it's like, nope, not for you, you know, and um, just so much of, of those happy or potentially happy memories or experiences just dropped and um, no access to television, books, radio. We never got a formal education while we were there and uh, just spent my days of doing chores, manual labor, the form of punishments when you misbehaved or even if you didn't misbehave, but Perhaps they thought you were challenging their authority or, or their control led to just unreal abuse. And uh, I think that's the part of you that you just never forget, you know, that never leaves you with even with the amount of therapy and work that you do and healing that you do. Those those are scars that are imprinted on your soul that never go away. And I share that because I think so many people have this idea of of healing or they go through something traumatic and they think that in order to heal or to be whole that those things have to be completely erased or forgotten. And that until that happens, you're not whole again. And that's not true. I think you can very much heal and become whole from an experience and still have very deep scars, physical and invisible. Not a lot of joy, not a lot of like, what were some of your best childhood memories? Well, mine is not going to look like some, you know, yours. And and that's okay too. And so I just remember the every day you go to sleep and you just, you know what tomorrow is going to be because it's the same. It's like um, Groundhog's Day where it's like the same, you're doing the same thing every day and nothing ever changes. But then also you never really get that feeling of hope that things are going to change or that your fate is something's going to be different. I think that's a hard thing to sort of live through um, just mentally too. Yeah, of course. And I believe that uh, in doing my research that there was a certain amount of time that you could ultimately spend 
in this orphanage before you couldn't stay there any longer. So you going through this Groundhog's Day time and time again, also losing your friends at one point or another without much of an understanding or explanation. Yeah. And uh, I haven't spoken too much about this, but um, that that is a reality that is also very in itself uh, a form of heartbreak that uh, is it's just impossible to put words around, right? You have to remember that in this room of five to 10 year olds, there's about 50 of us. You don't have parents. You don't have family. There's not love going around, not a lot of uh, nurturing going around. And so, I mean, obviously there's adults that are your quote caretakers, but the other children are really your family and who you form your bond and your connection with. It's the sense of we are all in this together, even if it's horrible, even if it's bleak, like just the fact that you have other people that are walking through the same journey and experience is something that's very comforting. And as you get older, you start to get this panic because, and anxiety because you start seeing these people suddenly leave. And I'll give you an example. This one young girl was a few years older than I was. And at 10 years old at the time, if you were not adopted or they didn't assign you somewhere else, you were just forced out of the orphanage. And although there's not really been a direct answer, even when I went back in 2016, they couldn't really say, they didn't say or want to say what really happened. The idea is painted quite clearly that you are just, you know, you're homeless more or less. And I remember that in the last two years, near the last two years that I was there, this girl who was a few years older than I was, so she was approaching that age 10 year, uh, was my lifeline. She was my best friend at the orphanage, helped to take care of me. At that time, most of the orphans were just girls. They didn't necessarily have a disability. Um, In fact, it wasn't all that Uh, common to even have a disability in the orphanage. The orphanages were just flooded with girls in a country that had a one-child policy. So she didn't have a disability, but she really, because she didn't have one, she helped that time. I barely had a prosthetic, but just growing up, you know, up until they made me one, um, she really helped me to get around, you know, just was such a great, really caretaker. And I formed this like just incredible bond with her. And then in the last year or two that I was there, she was just gone one day. Like it would be like your parents or your sibling. And one day you wake up and you never see them again. And nobody tells you what's happened to them, where they've gone. Like you have no answers. And that was for me, like, and I think a part of me just, it's like another form of grief, you know, and loss, except you have no answers of, of what's happened to them. And um, that for me was absolutely 
just crushing. And that's a common thing that happens though. At a certain age, you age out and people leave, but they don't tell you what's happened to them. And um, yeah, that just um, really devastating. Absolutely heartbreaking to hear that. And I appreciate you for sharing that. And also so interested about what it was like for you to go back in 2016, not to jump around too yeah. much, but I feel like I need to, I need to hear a little bit about that. One of the, if not the most profound experience of my life, um, that's something I've always wanted to do, but there's never the right times for it, right? There's nothing that prepares you for an experience like that. You're never going to be fully ready from an emotional standpoint to handle that kind of experience. But when I got the opportunity, I said I would I would always take it because you just don't know if you're ever going to get it again. And something that was really wonderful about going back in 2016 is that it was the exact same orphanage at the exact same location. And uh, two years later, they moved to a, a new new place. So I'm really glad that I was able to have that experience of seeing my original orphanage still uh, when I was able to go back. I went into that experience saying that I didn't want to be resentful. I didn't want to be bitter going there, even though my experience was were obviously really difficult. But uh, I just said I wanted to give as much love and hope as I possibly could to to the children. And uh, I was able to go there with my uh, partner, Nike. And we just had this mission that we were going to go. And, and one of the things that I remember about my childhood there was that we never got to, quote, play. There was no uh, soccer balls, basketballs, jump rope. There were no like real toys and so, or activities. And so I wanted to come and we gave just so many basketballs and soccer balls and jump ropes and toys. And it was just incredible. But uh, I just wanted to share uh, as much love and as much hope as I could with these kids. And that's what the experience was. We got to spend the whole day there. And just to be able to see the light in these kids' eyes when they saw me, now the orphanage, over 90% is with children with disabilities. And for them to sort of see somebody that looks like them um, and, and just to be able to connect with them on that level was just incredible. But what I will say about that experience is, that was really the turning point of my, uh, healing journey. Because up until then, I really hadn't addressed a lot of what that experience, the impact that it had on me in my life. You know, you come here and you just try to, you know, assimilate here and you're trying to get by and all these things. And and you kind of really haven't had a lot of time to really reflect and think about the how such an experience like that leaves you right and so for me to be able to afterwards I didn't cry single tear while I was there but as soon as I left there was such a I mean there was tears for months after that and uh, I finally realized okay I need to go and talk to somebody and work through everything that I've 
gone through in that experience of, you know, from when I was a kid to come on going back and, and all of that. So it was really just a, a wonderful experience in that sense of, I think a lot of times we can't move forward from something until you face the very place, the people that perhaps broke you. For me, I, I didn't realize how long I'd been parked at that place of pain, of loss, of trauma, until I was able to go back to the orphanage and I saw that, okay, well, in the physical sense, I'm okay, but emotional and mentally, I'm still not okay. And so I went down a really dark <laughs> couple of years of having to work through that, getting therapy, medical help, all of that to really heal from that, from that experience. And, um, I didn't really know I needed it that bad, but uh, I'm really glad I, I was able to just confront it and realize like, this is some heavy stuff. And until you deal with it and you work through it, you're you're always going to be parked at this place and you're never going to be able to reach your full potential. And to your point here, grief isn't a linear journey, yeah. as you said earlier as well. Everyone that you walk by on the street has their own story and is navigating so much grief. And for you to be carrying this around, not just like the emotional anguish that I cannot even fathom, but I'm sure in certain ways, physically also, this grief was manifesting within your body in so many different ways. Yeah, you feel that, right? The anxiety, the stress, the tension, the physical pain. Absolutely. And I think it can be in some ways all encompassing, right? It can be, it can fill and, and completely consume your mind, but it can also consume your emotions and your physical state too. And, um, and a lot of times we think we're okay because we've had success, right? Or we're doing so well. Or on the outside, people look at you and they're like, oh, but she's living her dream and she's so successful. There's no possible way she's struggling. And uh, I think that what's important is that even in the midst of living your dreams, there can also be a tremendous amount of suffering that's part of the human condition and it's part of the condition that we don't always want to recognize or admit is there. Even while you can be perfectly successful, you can be, you know, having everything, you can be living your dream, you can have everything that somebody else would want. And that doesn't mean that there isn't a considerable amount of suffering going on. Two things can be true at the same time. And, um, that it's also very human and very normal to go through that. Both. And this idea that it's not like it's life without gratitude. Yes, there is gratitude, but there can also be suffering. There can mm -hmm. also be trauma. There can also be, as you mentioned here, so many things that those that may have an opinion on the success may not be seeing from where they sit. Now, we did talk about this extremely traumatic chapter for you, but the silver lining is that you do come over to America mm -hmm. and you get adopted. So talk to us a little bit about the childhood that you remember that was a little bit sunnier than what you experienced before that time. Yeah, I would say that uh, 
obviously being adopted right up there with one of the best things that's ever happened to me in my life. I certainly don't think I would have probably made it to this point in terms of like, I don't know that I'd still be alive today if I wasn't adopted. And I say that because when I left the orphanage at almost eight years old, I weighed 22 pounds. That's a size two toddler. I mean, some one-year-olds are that by the end of their first year. And so um, clearly physically malnourished, very weak. I mean, to be eight and 22 pounds is, um, it's almost unthinkable. And so, um, you know, I'm I'm obviously so grateful because uh, I know I'm alive today because I was adopted. But I would also say that experience is heartbreaking in a totally different way. You go from the only place you've ever known, the other kids that are your family, this environment, um, like I said, all you've ever known to coming here to America, experiencing everything for the first time new. And not only for the first time you're having these experiences, but also you don't have a reference point for anything because you've never been educated. You've never watched a movie. You've never listened to anything that would tell you, you know what I mean? Like now it's like, you know, we have today, you know, we can know how other people in other parts of the world live because with the form of media that we have access to and information, but we didn't have access to any of that. And so the idea of coming to America and having parents, living with a family, I didn't even know what that was. And so, and I'd never been on a plane or a train and you're just, you know, uh, going to school before all these new things. And so, um, that obviously was just kind of the first year you have this deep, um, almost like your sick feeling in the pit of your stomach of, of just navigating all this newness. But um, I come to a town of 1,600 people in northern Michigan, uh, predominantly Caucasian. I could count on one hand the number of minorities that lived in this town. And two of them were in my family, <laughs> my other two siblings. <laughs> so uh, obviously that had its own challenges, right? And then I don't speak a word in English. And, oh, I also have a disability, something that's not seen in our entire county. Your adopted parents had also adopted twice before. My sister that came first was adopted 10 months before. And then my brother and I came together. But none of us are biologically related. Got it. So, um, but they never, together, they never had children except for the ones I adopted from China. And, um... Yeah, so just uh, a lot of difficulties in that. And and um, the adoption and adoptee experience is also another uh, identity crisis sort of you go through, right? And I think so many people don't hear a lot about this because we often associate adoption as like this form of like a savior complex, right? Like somebody's being rescued. But what often happens in these uh, foreign adoption scenarios, so my parents are white. I'm obviously not. I grew up in a white family. 
but it also strips you of where you come from and um you know you're sort of being put in a situation where another culture's norms and values and traditions and culture is being put on you and you go through this like well what am i am i chinese am i white am i half am i and um it gets very confusing especially when you grow up in a community where there's not a lot of people like you <laughs> to connect with to hold on to that part of your identity your culture your language and those are difficult things uh for foreign born foreign adoptees immigrants it's it's very common the immigrant experience um but it's a hard one to navigate yeah and i know that you ultimately ended up going to UCLA would you say that that was really your introduction into a more diverse group of humans yes and something really wonderful happened at UCLA but also was a bit uh confusing for me is so UCLA i believe when i left it was like 44% asian right? Hmm. We call it the University of Caucasians Lost Among Asians. Like that's the real acronym <laughs> of UCLA. It's the largest uh, ethnic group at, at UCLA, more than than the number of white people that go there. And um, so my roommate is full Chinese. Her parents are, you know, first generation immigrants. And I remember her just being so horrified in some ways and shocked that I wasn't more Chinese, that mm. I didn't act more Chinese, that I didn't speak the fluent Mandarin, that I didn't have a rice cooker in our room, that I didn't have all these, you know, traditions or customs that come with being Chinese. And her just being like, how is this possible? Like, you're not living up to your identity, you know? And, um, and so it kind of really forced me to confront the fact that from my childhood here in America or growing up in America, I had largely, not necessarily by choice, but had to dismiss or ignore my Chinese identity to fit in, to assimilate, to adjust uh, to, to, to be accepted. Right. And, um, but it was also really wonderful because it's also sort of the chapter of my life that really helped me to open my eyes and to learn to start embracing that part of who I am, that to be proudly Asian, to, uh, embrace, um, you know, what I look like and my features that make me Chinese and just, um, to not dismiss it. And so that was something that was wonderful that came out of UCLA. Taking a break from today's episode to talk to you about my sponsors. First up, my friends at Element. That's L-M-N-T. Element is my go-to science-backed electrolyte drink mix. It's got everything you need and nothing you don't. Bonus, it's plant-based with no sugar, no gluten, no fillers, or other sketchy ingredients. I need to give a shout out to the Hurdle editorial assistant, Chelsea, because she ran a marathon over the weekend and crushed it. And in her buildup, she, I believe it was last week, shot me a text and she told me, 
I just tried the watermelon element salt and this isn't even a lie. It is life changing. <laughs> I totally agree. Watermelon is my favorite flavor, but they have different flavors for every taste palette there is from citrus and chocolate to orange, raspberry, unflavored if that's your thing. Plus you can get a little spicy with options like mango chili or lemon habanero. These electrolytes will help you power through whatever activity you have on deck and they'll taste great while they're doing it. Head on over to drinkelement.com. That's drinklmnt.com slash hurdle to get your free element sample pack today. All you've got to do is pay $5 in shipping. Again, that is drinkelement.com slash hurdle to get your free element sample pack today. Also want to give some love to my friends at Whoop. For those who may not be familiar with Whoop, Whoop is a digital fitness and health coach that tracks key physiological metrics and provides detailed, actionable feedback to optimize your performance via a monthly membership. I have been an active Whoop user since April 2019. I just upgraded my Whoop strap with a fancy new band that I am obsessed with. They've got dozens of different styles for every taste. And among my favorite features from Whoop is the Sleep Coach, which analyzes sleep duration, quality, efficiency, and consistency every single night. Then with that data, it provides ideal bed and wake times to help improve my sleep routine and performance the next day. Thanks to the Whoop journal feature, I also know what habits like eating too close to bedtime or slacking on my daily hydration intake can really impact my overall recovery score. And honestly, the gamification is fun and it keeps me honest. I am hooked on my Whoop and I know that you could be too. I've got an offer for the Hurdle listeners. Head on over to whoop.com, that's W-H-O-O-P.com and use the code HURDLE15 to unlock 15% off any Whoop membership. Plus, get a free Whoop 4.0 device. Again, that is whoop.com, W-H-O-O-P.com. Use the code HURDLE15 at checkout to get 15% off any membership today. Talk to me about coming into your own as an athlete as well during your time in college. I know that you got your first running prosthetic at 14, so Mm -hmm. I'm sure quite the journey from getting your first running prosthetic to running competitively in college? Uh, So I actually didn't know or hear or get recruited into Paralympics until my sophomore year at UCLA. So fairly late in the game. um, But the the, the high performance director for U.S. Paralympic track and field had I guess she had read some articles that uh, I was a triathlete and was a runner. And one thing about Paralympics that people don't know is there's still quite a gap between male and female participation at the games. So the numbers, unlike the Olympics, it's pretty much 50-50. In the Paralympics, it's not like that. The It's a little bit better now, but the Paralympics has, hasn't even reached 40% female athletes. Wow. So you can imagine even two games ago, we're barely clearing 30%. And, and, you know, so my point being is that they were sort of on this mission and still much of what I'm doing now uh, on this mission to get more women athletes. 
competing in the Paralympics. And so she saw that I could obviously run because I did triathlon. And well, I wonder if we can get her over to cross over to track. And at the time, triathlon was not part of the Paralympic program. And so she had contacted me and I was like, eh, I'm not really that interested. I'm having a lot of success doing triathlon. I really like distance running. And when I went to high school, there wasn't track or cross country. We didn't have a, a program. We didn't have a facility neither. So I didn't really know anything about track really to begin with, but she just kept being persistent. Finally, I was like, okay, I'll come to a camp. So the camp was at the Olympic Training Center in Chula Vista. And one week there, and I was like, I think I want to do this. This is amazing. And I think being somebody, I'm very competitive in terms of um, sports and having largely been denied the opportunity to be competitive growing up in high school sports or grade school sports, the idea of competing at the Paralympics, the biggest stage in the world, um, was just obviously very alluring to me. And so that's how I got involved in Paralympic track and field. And obviously I didn't make the team in 2012, but decided I would continue. And um, here we are. <laughs> here we are. You know, it's it's very impressive to me uh, and very appropriate that we started this off talking about words like resilience because mm -hmm. You just touched on the struggles that you faced coming into sport in high school. And for so many, that would dissuade them mm -hmm. from continuing on to kind of investigate that a little mm -hmm. bit more and pursue that passion. Mm -hmm. For you, do you believe that that type of behavior, that type of resilience, that type of determination was modeled at home maybe, or where did that grit come from for you? Living through that orphanage experience is really what, you know, instilled that never quit, always keep fighting attitude. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I started doing sports when I was in second grade and it started with youth soccer. I'm so excited because one thing that's really wonderful about sport is it was really the only thing in when me coming here to America that made me feel like, okay, this is how I'm going to be able to understand, to assimilate, to get adjusted is, is through sport because sports are really without borders. You don't have to speak the same language. You don't have to all look alike. Like that's the beauty of sport. Right. And for me, those were, you know, the social, cultural, language barriers I was struggling with. Sport was a great way for me to sort of integrate myself here. And, um, but I found out something that wasn't expected. And maybe it was just the naive aspect of me. But I could always show up, came to every game, every practice, every tournament. But I wasn't always welcome to actually compete. And I remember just being kind of shocked, but then sort of looking back and being like, why was I shocked, you know? And um, so I, every season of every year, I signed up for a sport through, from second grade through high school. And I tried every and all, and obviously didn't have a lot of success given 
at that time, I didn't have a sports prosthetics. I did sports on my everyday walking leg, not made to do sports, but I worked hard. I showed up every day. And I remember in eighth grade, I wrote my softball coach this. You remember? I don't even know if you remember this, but this might show how old I am. They, they used <laughs> to have these papers that you put in your three ring binder and it had like lines on it. Yeah. Kind of like translucent, right? You could sort of see through this. And I filled out one of those eight by 11 one line um, papers and wrote her a letter to say I was quitting the team and why I was quitting and how I didn't appreciate the way that she was training me and how the other girls didn't include me and just like they were so resistant to everybody else got to play except me and I'm working hard and showing up every day. And like, the thing is, I wasn't somebody who was like real rah-rah or like real loud and I wasn't in anybody's face, but this letter was like, all right, I'm going to show her, you know, cause I would, I would show up every day, but I wouldn't complain about the fact that I didn't get playing time or that people were like, Oh, stay away from her. You know, I didn't, I didn't display any of my frustrations with that. So this letter, I put it all out there. Would you say the letter was out of character for you? Coach completely. Like <laughs> I, even, I remember reading it back and being like, who is this person? You're so ridiculous. Right. And so I was putting it in an envelope and sealed it. And I'm like, I'm going to practice and giving it to her tomorrow. Well, of course I wake up the next morning and I'm like, Oh, hell no. I'm not giving her this letter because if I give her this letter and tell her I'm quitting, then she's going to get what she wanted. Mm. Me not in their face. Me not there. Clearly, that was the message she was sending me is you sit on the bench and everybody else will play but you. And I'm like, why am I going to give her that satisfaction? That's ridiculous. It's silly. And no, I'm going to show up every day, even though I know what the end result is going to be. And I Bad think girl. there's a really powerful lesson in that. I didn't know it at the time, but it served me well in my life. And it's the idea that in any environment, whether you're in sport, whether you're in a work setting, family, whatever it might be, the idea of how important it is to just show up and to be there, even when you don't want to be, even when you know you're not wanted, even when you know you are the other. And um, there's something really important in that because of the of the not only the resilience and the strength that it builds, but also helping them to understand that the only way we get inclusion, the only way we get acceptance, the only way we diversify the environments we're in is sometimes just to simply be there, to exist, to have other people be comfortable with whatever discomfort they might feel in our presence. And there's something to be said about that. And so uh, I didn't know it at eighth grade, but it taught me something really valuable. And um, it was hard though, the idea to show up and, and to know you're not gonna get to play. But I think that, I, that what really pushed me is I just loved being out there. I loved being part of something competitive. I loved training. I loved working hard. I loved just showing up and knowing I'm going to do something today that I maybe couldn't do yesterday. And that for me was really rewarding. 
Yeah. And that grit and determination, it wasn't just back in high school. Obviously, Mm -hmm. it carries with you through college. And then come 2015, when you first start training as a professional, a lot of that grit and determination and resilience comes into play with the circumstances that surround doing that full time. Talk to me a little bit about what life was like back in 2015. Well, I know you've had many incredible professional Olympians and and athletes on your show. And typically how it works is you go pro when you have a major sponsor or a sponsor, not even a major sponsor, a sponsor. Right. I decided I was going to go pro, go all in, and I didn't have a single commercial sponsor. The Scout Bassett way. (laughs) I would not recommend uh, this is the way to do it. It wasn't like, and I'm not even talking an apparel brand. Like it wasn't, there wasn't even like a drink sponsor, right? That was like, hey, we'll give you, there wasn't even like a merchandise or, or, or a product sponsor. It was just, you know, what had happened is I left UCLA. All right. And uh, after college, I got a, a really great job offer to work in digital media for a medical device company in in Orange County, California. And towards, um, you know, midway through year three, I realized, okay, I've been training still in the morning after work. And it's just starting to get to be very difficult because now I'm working more hours, I'm traveling more for work, and it's just getting to be a little bit unmanageable. And this dream of competing at the Olympic or the Paralympics had eluded me. And I thought, there's only one way I'm going to make this happen. And it's if I go all in. Because at this level, the Paralympics is not participatory. It's not anybody that's training and wants to compete can compete. It's you have to earn your spot to go. And I knew that the only way to do that was to go all in. And I got a coach at the Olympic Training Center that I had been in contact with, said, I'll train you. But you got to find a way to live down here and and get to practice every day. And so I naively decided, oh, I'm just going to. And at this time, I'm 25, 26, maybe 25. And I decide, okay, I'm going to just quit my job. And mind you, like, this was a really great first job out of college. And like, I had, you know, uh, really great benefits. It was really good pay. I had a company card, like, I'm leaving all of that to be like, I'm gonna go poor and broke, I have no money. Um, And uh, to no sponsors, I'm gonna just do this full time. So I moved to San Diego. And I lived off of my friends couches and spare rooms for six months, and decided like, I'm just going all in. And um Obviously, you know, we know what happened, but the results were tremendous. Being able to be all in full time made my way from like 20 something in the world to top five in six months in the world rankings. Then, of course, I got my first um, sponsor that, you know, was interested. But that time was absolutely terrifying. I mean, whenever I think of making a change now or how scared I am to do something bold or big or brave, I think back on that time. Like if you could leave a job and go and pursue your dream and have absolutely no sponsors, very little savings, like 
and do it and go all in. Like you can do hard things, you know, you can do other hard things. And it turned out great. But uh, I remember there would be nights I would literally tears would just stream down on my pillow being like, I don't know if I'm going to have gas money to get to practice this week or like how many cup noodles can I buy? You know, it's just like things like that, you know, it's just, it was wild. Do you remember where you were and also like how it happened? Because obviously things have kind of evolved over time, but where you were when you got that first sponsorship offer, was it a call? Was it an email? Yeah, it was a call. And I remember being in the bathroom, getting ready to to go to practice. And I got this call from a, a Portland number. And I'm like, I don't know anybody in Portland. Um, but it didn't look like a spam, like call. So I just, I don't even know why I picked up because now I never pick up a number that I don't, (laughs) like I don't have saved, but it was like a Portland number. And I'm like, I've never gotten a call from a Portland area code. Right. And so I picked up and, and, um, her name is Lori Roth and she's probably not going to appreciate me putting her name out there, but, (laughs) but, uh, she called me to tell me that she was interested in, and um, Nike, she works for Nike in sports marketing and was interested in sponsor, you know, where we were interested in sponsoring you. And I remember being like, oh, this, this is not real. Click. Like, I thought it was like a like a spam call or like a fake call because I was like, this is, this is not real. Like, <laughs> click. you hung up. Yeah. I was like, Oh, I was like, Oh, thanks. But I'm not interested. Like thinking it was like some sort of like somebody's trying to get me into like, you know, bait me into something. And so, um, and then the number calls back again. <laughs> wait spam numbers don't almost never do that right if you hang up they don't call you back and so I picked up and she's like I'm for real I'm a real person she's like I can send you my email like I can send you my company like you know my company email to let you know I actually work for the company and I was like oh like I never heard of her you know and so you know she's like I'm serious like this is not a, a praying this is not a spam you know whatnot and so anyways, um, it just, uh, that's where I was. And um, it was incredible. You know, I think what's funny is a lot of people start out doing this. Like nowadays, all these young kids, well, how do I get a sponsor? How do I get this? How do I get what you have? And I always cringe in some ways when I hear that, because when I started out doing this, I'm like, it wasn't for any of that. It wasn't, I never started doing Paralympics or quit my job to do this full-time thinking, oh, I can get sponsors out of this. Oh, I'm going to make a good living doing this. Like I went into this mindset of like, I'm going to struggle. I'm going to suffer. Like I'm going to be broke doing this and I'm okay with that to chase this dream. It wasn't, I'm going to chase this dream so that I can get a nice living and live comfortably and have all this recognition. Like it wasn't for any of that. And so when Nike and and City and some of these other partners came, it was all cherry on top for me. It was all beyond my wildest expectations or dreams. And I'm really glad it happened that way because it's made me appreciate and also 
helped to keep me grounded of why I do this the longer I've done this and um, to remind myself that it was never for, for any of this. And obviously it's wonderful because it got me out of my car and all my friends, thankfully my friends couches and spare room. They're, they're more thankful than I am. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, and obviously um, it's been wonderful in that sense and to be able to have a platform and a voice and certainly that, but uh, it's funny when, you know, young athletes today are like, well, how do I get this? And how do I get that? And I'm like, just focus on getting better, improving the results, your process, like the journey, focus on that. And if it's meant to be, it will happen. Like those things will come. Yeah. And I know that you, you know, the hurdles keep coming for you. Uh, I loved watching you doing a lot of the commentating on NBC <laughs> last year, but I'm sure that that experience at the time was probably a little bit difficult for you as someone mm. who had participated in 2016. How did you reframe your mindset to really grab hold of the reins on that opportunity? It was hard. Uh, I'm not going to lie. Uh, it's it wasn't the dream, right? My dream is not to be commentating for the Paralympics. It's obviously to become com to be competing in the Paralympics. And last year, it was the perfect storm of everything that could have gone wrong that season did go wrong, and um, just you know injuries and setbacks, personal setbacks, and health stuff, and it was really rough and it was rocky. And I knew going into the trials that we were, it was going to be a bit of a long shot, you know? And, um, and obviously up until August, there was still this possibility because, you know, I was only quite high on the alternate list and they were thinking maybe we'll get a few additional slots and you'd be one of the first people to go. So I'm still training. And then, when we got word that they weren't going to receive any additional slots, it was like the tears were flowing again, you know, and it was really rough. But then obviously when the opportunity came for, for NBC, I've always been interested in doing sports media. I'm a huge sports junkie. I, I mean, when I'm home, sports are always on in the background, even <laughs> if I'm not watching it, it's just always on in the background. Um, but I love it. I love following sports. And so just, um, and obviously I, I have a really good knowledge and, and, uh, of the Paralympics. And so when that opportunity came, I just tried to really see it as like, all is not lost here. You know, something good can come out of this if you just embrace it. And even though this may not have been the dream, uh, you're going to be able to shed light on other people's stories, talk about the Paralympics, um, you know, really amplify the Paralympics here in this country. And that's a dream of mine too. It's just a different kind of dream. And so that was really wonderful. And I had such an incredible experience and, but it certainly was hard. I mean, I remember like specifically calling my race um, and it being like, this is a little awkward, you know, and just, uh, but I think it just showed me that again, you can do hard things and something wonderful can come out of it. And it really sort of, sort of birthed this passion, uh, going forward in the future where 
I loved it enough where I could see myself doing, joining, you know, the sports media in, in the future. So that was really wonderful. And I think that's something I've tried to remind myself of, like, I mean, you're doing such a great job of it that while you're being an athlete, you can pursue other, and it's important to hone other skills, to develop other passions, interests, because one day this is going to be over. And you're going to have to find something else that gets you going and that, you know, you're just as excited and passionate about. So that was a great opportunity for that. I know also recently you participated in the Nike athlete think tank Mm -hmm. and in that experience surrounded by so many stellar other stellar athletes. Uh, Do you have anyone that when you do sit in front of them, you get a little bit nervous about? Uh, certainly Serena. (laughs) I felt that way when I was in her presence at that think tank was just, it's like, this is Serena Williams. Um, and, uh, what was kind of funny is I'd actually worked at the U S open as a court attendant in my, uh, sophomore year of college. How funny that summer. And I worked as a court attendant working one of her, um, events and uh or matches on Arthur Ashe Stadium and uh, so I actually met her then she didn't remember but not not surprisingly it's okay um but then to like you know tell her that story she she thought it was pretty cool that you know I did that and uh but obviously you know she's just such an impressive person not only as an athlete but I love what she's doing off the court and and really making herself uh, a woman of, of many skills and talents. And um, I think the people I'm most inspired by, Allison Felix is another one. She's a good friend. But whenever I'm around her, I feel like I just sound like an idiot because <laughs> I get so nervous and I try to like be engaging. And then I'm like, but I'm talking to Allison Felix. <laughs> the people I'm really impressed by are are not only great athletes. There's a lot of really great athletes. But the people that I'm really most impressed, moved, inspired by are the ones who are much more than just an athlete, um, doing things that are, you know, showing that as a woman you can do and have and be it all. And I think that's something I really strive for because so much of society still tells women that they've got to stay in their lane and they have to sacrifice this to have this. And, and people try to put you in these boxes, right? of what you should be doing and the roles and the lanes that you should be in. And I love women who have defied that and, um, you know, are saying people tell me I can't have it all. Well, I can't and I can do it all. And I'm just really impressed by that because it's something that, you know, I want to be too. I'm, I see myself as so much more than just an athlete. And, um, you know, I think it's important for people to know that too. You just said the term, I believe it was not staying in my lane. And at the top of this, we talked about how it may feel at times to feel as though others are defining you Mm -hmm. by your disability. When you look in the mirror, Scout, what is it that you see looking back at you? Hmm. I see myself as a, uh, a disruptor, a change maker, a difference maker. And, um, you know, somebody who's just absolutely relentless in all things in life. And that's what I'm most proud of. The other day, my coach, uh, 
I actually made a huge change this off season and went to a new coach and a new program after being with my previous coach for six years. And it's always scary when you make those kind of huge career changes, life changes like that. But um, one thing that she said to me was she said, you are the hardest working athlete I've ever worked with. And she works with, you know, elite college coaches, I mean, college athletes. And uh, she said, just to see that your work ethic and the way you show up every day and you don't make excuses and you just like, you're just relentless. And it just gave me such a sense of pride when she told me that, because that's how I want people to see me too, as somebody who is, um, you know, just works really hard, has never had anything handed to them. Things have never come easily. And uh, I want people to know that, you know, in life, there's going to be so many times and circumstances where it's not set up for you to succeed. In fact, if it was that way, you wouldn't appreciate the success as much. And we see that in athletes where everything has come so easily or they've come into it in a situation where they had every resource available. And it's not the same attitude. It's not the same perspective. And so, you know, I really, I want people to know that, you know, uh, if it's all set up for you to succeed, it's, it, it might not be the right thing, you know, and it's certainly not going to mold and, and build you to who you want to be because the best things in life um, the most valuable thing, wins I've gotten, the most um, precious things that I I have in my life have all come from the really hard stuff. It's never come from being on the podium, winning, having records. It's come from the hardest things I've ever had to do, the hardest decisions, the hardest seasons. Um, and I appreciate everything so much more because it didn't come easily because it wasn't just handed and that you're going to have to work for it. And so that's what, um, I really appreciate. For those that may be listening to this, who, uh, may not be quite where you're at mm -hmm. with their disability, perhaps, or mm -hmm. navigating disability on their own. Yeah. What, advice do you have to offer them as they make their way on their journey? Just to lean into that journey, not to resist hard things, hard seasons. Uh, I think so many of us, the natural instinct when we're hit with something really difficult, myself included, is what can we do to just make this go away or to avoid it or to run from it or to cover it up so that I don't have to deal with it or that I don't have to confront it. And the only thing that it does is it just delays things. It doesn't make it go away. It just delays whatever journey you're supposed to be on. And so for me, I've whenever I've leaned into the hard stuff and I say to myself, something good's going to come from this if I allow it to. I want to grow from this. I want to build. I want to evolve from this. Like I want whatever lessons I can gain from this really difficult thing, obstacle, hurdle, challenge, struggle, whatever it might be. I want to get the very most out of it as I can. When I go in with that perspective, uh, it makes it a lot easier. You're not fighting it. You're not resisting it. And so I just say, whatever, if you're in a hard season or approaching that, just to lean in, you know, to to take out 
and get the most of it from that. Because if you're, if you allow it yourself, every struggle, every hardship you go through is going to teach you something really incredible. The hard thing is that most of us don't want to find out what that is, right? And <laughs> it's hard. So I would just say to lean in and just, you know, get the best out of whatever that difficulty is because difficulties exist in life for a reason. It's not there to just um, put you on a detour. It's there to do something, to teach you something, to grow you, to mold you, and um, just embrace that. Grace and patience. Grace and patience. You also mentioned just now, you said just now, working with a new coach. What else excites you at the moment? Uh, I'm working on a couple of projects that are really exciting that I can't quite talk about, but uh, not just yet. <laughs> not yet. We, we can come back and discuss that when when it comes out. But those are really, really great things. You know, Emily, something funny has kind of happened. And, um, you know, I'm I'm more towards the sunset of my career than the sunrise. But what I have really enjoyed in this time is you know, I'm aiming for 2024. And what I've realized in this go around is just to really relish the process more, not to be so fixated on the outcome or the results. But this is something that is um, finite, right? There's an end to this. And I want to be able to when it's all said and done to say like, I loved every single moment of being an athlete, even the really hard things, um, but that I made the most of it. And I loved the journey, the work, the process more than um, you have to love that more than the result, because the truth is sport. There's a lot of failure. You know, you're probably going to lose more races than you win races. And so as a result, you just have to love the process. And that's what I'm this go around really um, enjoying more is just the, the process of the grind and, and the ups and the downs of, of that come with being just, you know, being an athlete, but um loving this really like, I feel like I love it now more than I ever have. And that's a wonderful thing. I love hearing that. That's just like, truly, I feel like there are probably so many people listening to this right now that also needed to hear that piece of advice. Uh, speaking of advice, the last question here for you today, Scout. Right now, you have an opportunity looking back on, I really want to say, you know, that time period dealing with not going to the 2020 Paralympics. Yeah. It seems as though when it comes to hurdles in your athletic career, that was a really monumental one. Mm -hmm. So right now, you have an opportunity looking back on that time to offer yourself one piece of advice, looking at that hurdle moment, what is it that you tell yourself? The answer would be that it's going to be okay. Because in the moment and at the time when I didn't make the, the selection, I remember just being like, it's like your heart just falls out of your chest, right? And it's just shattered. And for a couple of weeks, I... I wasn't okay. And there were tears almost every day. But I had this feeling of like, oh my gosh, where do I go from here? It's the end of the world. Like, this is it. And you just, you feel like it's it's the end of the road, right? And I remember just being like, and and what I realize now is it's, it's 
not the end all be all life goes on. And, um, but also how thankful I am for all the people in my life at that time. And now who have like held me together and helped me to pick up the pieces and, and just pushed me to keep going. And you still have the, your best is still in you. And, and that, um, one day, one race, doesn't define who you are. One failure doesn't define you. And I think that's important to keep in mind because oftentimes when we fall short of our dream or our expectation or when we don't get what we want, it often feels like it's it's the end, right? And, um, and a lot of times we say, oh, that's the sign. I, I must be done. Like, give up. And, uh, I'm just thankful for everybody in my life who helped me to realize, like, um, not to define myself by that, you know, that I am so much more than that one moment in that one race. And um, I would say that for anybody, you know, whether you don't get that job promotion or that pay upgrade that you were hoping for, or maybe it's something more personal. Um, maybe you want to have children and, and you're not, that's not happening, whatever it might be, or you want to get married and, and that's not happening. What, whatever goals or dreams you have that a delay is not always a denial. It just means it's not right now. And, um, I think it's important for people to keep that in perspective that a delay doesn't mean that it's never going to happen or that you just got to quit. Um, it sometimes it's just that it's just a delay. It's it's that it's for you, but it's not happening right now. It's not your time. And in many ways, I feel like I'm a better athlete now than I was the last go around. Just all around, mentally, physically, emotionally, and that's a really wonderful place to be. What a journey, Scout. Let me tell you, this combo undoubtedly worth the wait. 10 out of 10 would do it again. How do the hurdlers follow along with you? How do they keep up with you as you continue along in this beautiful chapter? Give us all the details. Thank you so much. You are tremendous. I understand and see now why your podcast is so successful. You do such a great job. <laughs> uh, it's just at Scout Bassett. Um and Bassett is with two S's and two T's. Beautiful. I'm over at Hurdle Podcast and at Emily Avadi. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time. <laughs>